Support for this podcast is brought to you by Park Row Books, publisher of The Crossing by New York Times bestselling author Jason Mott. In this thrilling dystopian novel, the world is at war as a deadly contagion steadily wipes out entire populations. Twins Virginia and Tommy Matthews are faced with a simple choice, stay and die or run and survive. The Crossing by Jason Mott is available now wherever books are sold. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker. And this week we are presenting stories about being different. All of us probably have something about us that sets us apart. You're never going to believe this, but for me, it's my voice. When I was growing up, kids used to call me Eeyore or Daria or sometimes just monotone, which is not really as evocative, but gets right to the point in a certain way that I respect And uh, now all of you have to suffer through it as well. I apologize. The talents of James Earl Jones were unavailable for this podcast. But I've also come to see it as an asset as I get older. Whenever someone recognizes me, it's because of my voice. One time I was on vacation in Maine waiting in line for a cheeseburger, and the woman in front of me turned around and said, I think I heard you tell a story about your parents' divorce on the moth. Which was lovely. It's never a bad time to talk with strangers about your parents' divorce. (laughs) So sometimes differences are strengths Certainly true in the case of our storytellers today Our first story today is from Amanda Gorman It was recorded at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts in December 2017 The theme that night was Heroes and Villains These are how dinners were spent at my mom's house on weeknights. Her, on one hand, saying words like hamburger and R, matey, trying to teach her five-year-old daughter, me, how to say the R sound and me just failing miserably. Then you have my twin sister, on the other hand, Gabrielle, who was just bored out of her mind and looking at us like we're crazy. Because we are. And it was also at this table that my mom would remind us of life morals, like, you can do anything and you each have your own superpower, which I knew was a bull-faced lie. Let me give you some background. Um, When I was in elementary school, I was so small, the teachers would put rocks in my pockets so the wind wouldn't blow me away. My mom took me to the UCLA Medical Center to get myself weighed, and the doctor said, "Mm, we're not sure she has enough fat to go through puberty yet. We'll wait and see. On the other hand, my sister is basically Mrs. Incredible. By the time she was two, she could do Chinese splits. She can run five miles without stopping or sweating. And I'll give you another example. She learned how to do a backflip on her first try on accident on cement 
of all of these things, the thing I was most upset about is we're twins. We were born at the same time, which means we were both born early and prematurely, which means we both had ear infections, and which meant that we both had an auditory processing disorder, which means we basically heard things differently, which also meant that we both had speech impediments. We talked very differently than the children around us. But of course, it was my sister, Gabby Douglas, Mrs. Incredible Gabrielle Gorman, who overcame her speech impediment before I even made any progress. So I'm here trying to say R and hamburger, whatever. And my sister's just there eating her cornbread and she's like, you know, Amanda, you should do what I did to learn the R sound. I just like imagined a movie in my head of me saying the word and I figured it all out. What my sister doesn't get in sound, she makes up by thinking in motion. She thinks in pictures, which makes her a fantastic director. I, on the other hand, think in words, like snapshots of letters, which means I'm screwed. Because you can memorize the dictionary, but that doesn't mean you can really pronounce it correctly. And my mom, she's like, hey, 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 hey. You both have your own strengths. Amanda, till we work out this whole speech impediment thing, tell people the truth that you were born this way. And so I do, and that works for a little bit, but now I'm in middle school and I'm going through puberty, thank God, or not, I don't really know. Um, And suddenly, people just don't wanna hear, I was born this way anymore. And I remember this one white mother coming up to me and she has a pink crop top that says, this is what a feminist looks like, and she has like, Obviously, really fake blonde hair, and I remember she's the mom that owns all the condos in Santa Monica. And she's like, Amanda, your voice is so interesting. Where are you from? And I'm like, Los Angeles. And she's like, Where are you really from? And I laugh inside because I know we're about to play that game, the game where a white person's like, So where are your parents from then? I'm like, Chicago. And their parents? Texas. And their parents, Mississippi, and their parents, child, I don't know. (laughs) And I have to explain to this poor, ignorant white mother how the transatlantic slave trade works in the Great Migration. (laughs) Now, every now and then, so that I can avoid reciting like Roots by Alex Haley, I just tell these people I'm from wherever they think I'm from, which some days is London, other days is Nigeria, and some taxi cabs, it's Ethiopia, but most of the time, it's New York, which tells you how little we actually really know about accents. (laughs) Now I'm in ninth grade, and I'm just through with it. I am done. I'm done lying about where I come from and who I am and why I sound this way, so I decide... I'm going to just eliminate my speech impediment. This is a lot easier said than done because speech pathology, the study of speech and sound, is a science, it's a clinical practice that people study so hard, but I ain't got money for that stuff. And also, it sounds really easy, like, oh, how about you just call up your best friend who, I don't know, can say the R sound, and they can help you out a little bit. But actually, with the R sound, most speech pathologists recognize it as the most difficult letter to describe to another person in the English language. Let's do an exercise. I want everybody to close their eyes. 
Yes, you in the front row. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, okay. I want you to imagine saying the M sound. And imagine how you would tell someone to say that sound. Maybe you'd say, oh, rub your lips together like you're putting on chapstick, like you're humming. Easy, right? Keep them closed. Thank you. Now, I want you to imagine saying the er sound and how you would describe that to someone. It's a bit more complicated. Open your eyes. Awesome. So that was the same issue I had with my mom because she was just stunted. Anyways, I get to this point. I'm looking on Wikipedia, and I figure out Sidney Poitier, the first black man to win Best Actor at the Academy Awards, got rid of his Bahamian accent in like six months just by listening to the radio and recording himself. And I was like, I'm going to be Sidney Poitier, except the female version and cuter. And I'm like, I'm going to watch YouTube videos where they're describing how to say L versus R to Asian immigrants. I'm gonna stick my tongue to a popsicle stick to make it a bit stronger. And I'm gonna record myself. And I do stuff like recording myself saying uh, the lines from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And nothing gave me greater pleasure than when I could say the names of the heroes and the villains, which all have R's in them like Harry, Ron, Hermione, or Lord Voldemort, Draco, Dursley. It was like J.K. Rowling wrote that all for me. <laughs> then my next greatest challenge was singing Aaron Burr from the Hamilton musical. How are you, Aaron Burr, sir? Okay, I was done. That was just too hard. But the more I worked at it, the more that I felt that my speech was my own villain, my own Aaron Burr. It was tripping me up when I was on stage performing poetry or when I was saying my own last name, which was Gorman, or when I was telling people that I went to Harvard and, of course, it came out all joyable because of my voice and they just assumed, she's black, it's Howard. <laughs> Turns out it wouldn't take me six months to overcome my speech impediment. It would take me six years. Now I'm a freshman in college. I'm about to perform a poem in front of like 250 young women. And it's a poem about feminism, which is the worst for me. Because it has words like girl, world, earth. And I'm like, should I just say young female? But that's like exclusionary. And I could say like globe, but that doesn't really make sense. And I feel like I'm about to vomit because I've also gotten just like eight minutes or like so to write this poem and memorize it in front of this huge crowd. And I get on stage and I hear voices in my head and my sister telling me to think about everything in motion. And I just take a deep breath and I do my poem. And something miraculous happens. I don't think like my sister in pictures but I think like myself in words, that even when I'm looking out at the audience, I can see the letters in my head, I can see a snapshot of the page, and every time I'm saying a line, the words with R in it pop in front of my head in bright, bold red, as if warning me, danger, here it comes, prepare yourself. And all of a sudden, I can say girl with more power than I've ever said before, power even in itself. And sure, my speech still messes up a little bit, but for the first time, I'm okay with it. And I get off stage and immediately zooms down this like nine-year-old girl and she has deep brown hair and she tells me, I have that same exact speech impediment. And hearing it on stage was so powerful.
wow. She thought my work was powerful, not despite my speech impediment, but because of it, because I was still speaking up and empowering others. And if that power is not super, I don't know what is. Thank you. That was Amanda Gorman, called the next great figure of poetry in the U.S., 19-year-old Harvard sophomore Amanda is the first ever Youth Poet Laureate of the United States of America and a Moth Grand Slam champion. Her first poetry book, The One for Whom Food is Not Enough, was published in 2015, and she has been featured in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and Teen Vogue. At 16, she founded the community project One Pen, One Page, which promotes storytelling and youth activism. Our second story today is from Eliza Schaum. This story was recorded in August 2017 in Portland, Oregon, at a show we produced in conjunction with the Ecological Society of America's annual meeting and in partnership with Springer Nature's Springer Storytellers program. Find out more at beforetheabstract.com. Hello, can you, can you hear me okay? Okay, so in that case, I'm going to tell you a mainly true story about my family and about science. See, everybody in my family, apart from me, is an artist of some kind. So we have the musicians and the photographers and the authors and the sculptors. And if you, if you want to name me any kind of weird artistry, I can find you a cousin who, who does it. <laughs> Seriously. So, but what they have in common is that they, they make things, and they make the things so that they are beautiful and something for us to look at and to wonder about. So that's something they have in common. The other thing they have in common is that they do these things mainly based on too much booze, too much coffee, and too little sleep. They also, also, um, another thing, the third thing they have in common is that they all think that logically all offspring must follow suit into their world, into their slightly, slightly dark world, where a good story means that everybody is a little bit lost and completely naked. So, <laughs> so imagine my childhood, right? Any of my friends, as soon as their parents met my parents, nobody was ever allowed back to play with me. And, and can you blame them? So another really important thing about my family is that we have this really strong gypsy heritage, particularly on my mom's side. And what this means is that everybody apart from me has these luscious, dark, curly hair. And also that the supernatural and the ghosts are all over the place. And most of the ghosts aren't the nice kind. So one day I was playing um, in a house that had burned down in a different village, as you do when you need some peace and quiet from your noisy, noisy family. And I see, I see these shadows moving about the wall. And it really spooks me because I am the only person in that house. So I run, I run and I find my mother and I tell her that I'm, I'm really scared. I see these, these shadows and I think that there is at least one ghost in that building. So obviously what I want my mom to say is something along the lines of, oh, don't be silly chicken, ghosts don't exist. Instead, she looks at me and she looks me in the eye and she says, well, of course there are ghosts there. I can see them in your eyes and I can feel their darkness lingering on you. <laughs> yeah. I love my mom. And then she, then she goes on and she asks me if the ghosts have ever spoken to me. But disappointingly, 
the ghosts never spoke to me and if they did I could not hear them so that part of the the heritage seems to have passed me by in a Mendelian freak accident just like those this beautiful hair and the other thing that seems to have skipped me are the artsy ambitions because my ambitions growing up had very little to do with wanting to be an artist instead in no particular order what I wanted to do was to be an electrician or a Sputnik engineer or Kurt Cobain in a wedding dress or a gardener or maybe Indiana Jones <laughs> at, at this point in time my family tended to look at me with this air of mild confusion like they were trying to figure out how how did we go so wrong with this one? But at the time, I was also playing the piano and dancing like there was no tomorrow. So they thought, so maybe she, she'll be fine. She'll be fine just like the rest of us. They, they kept hoping. Then as a teenager, when I came out to them as queer, it didn't raise a single eyebrow. However, my continued disinterest in the beautiful arts that, that did, it raised all of the eyebrows. And they thought that, yeah, the letter is clearly just a phase. It's going to stop at some point. It did not. And then one day I sat my family down and I told them that I really, really needed to speak to them. They said, well, at least you can't be pregnant. At this point, <laughs> at this point, my cousin, one of my cousins, the illustrator to be, chimes in and says, well, this is deeply, deeply inappropriate. And at this point we dispense with the pleasantries and I tell my family immediately that I am one, going to go to university and two, study a life science. There is silence at the dinner table. <laughs> and my family, they, they just look at me and they, they stare at me. And I think that maybe maybe I have made a mistake here. But I also, I was expecting a little bit of discontent because nobody likes to be surprised like that, right? But um, I think that mainly their worries are going to be about how am I going to cope juggling, you know, university, even if it's free in continental Europe and a job because they certainly can't support me on their meager artist's income. I also think that maybe, maybe they're going to miss me just a tiny little bit because I had certainly missed them each time I had been off abroad, stranded in a different country full of strange people. But nothing could have prepared me for the outcry. University, my family exclaimed in almost perfect unison. And those 12 pairs of dark brown eyes, they stared at me and I felt like I had stepped in front of a tribunal of Greek deities that were going to judge me and then sentence me to punishment to be meted out by the liver-picking picking beak of a well-trained eagle. So they look at me and they ask me, have you thought about this? And they ask me, well, but the science thing that you speak about, it's going to be more like a hobby, isn't it? And then... <laughs> Seriously. And then, then they advised me to also study a creative subject on the side just to keep my options open. <laughs> then they talk for a little bit among themselves and then they come to the conclusion that science could also be really, really dangerous. Something large might eat me. Something small might infect and then slowly kill me. I might turn green and start to glow in the dark. At this point, at this point, I retort that that actually sounds kind of fun because if I turn green, maybe I can start to photosynthesize. And anyways, anyways, did, anyways, did they know that blood and chlorophyll are pretty much the same molecule anyways? They did not know that. And there's another silence. And then my, my dad, he looks at me and he says, oh, sweetie, I, I know what it is. There's a girl involved, isn't there? This is for love. It, and I think that maybe love would be the only acceptable reason for such treachery. But I tell them 
that this is not for some kind of stupid reason like Romans. I tell them that instead I want to explore and provide unbiased advice on how to make the world a better place. At this point, my grandmother, the, um, the graphic designer, she looks at me like I've lost it and she says, well, but beautiful arts make the world a better place. And my other grandmother, the seamstress, she pets her lovely red dress and her golden earrings and her bracelets. And I can tell from the look on her face that for once, both of my grandmothers are actually agreeing on something. <laughs> so, and my mother, of all of them, had been the most aggravated by the course of events. And she goes to um, her drawing board and I can hear her grieving and ululating about how her most musical one, her little dancer, not only a, um, a convicted devourer of science fiction, now also a scientist, the heavens forbid. And then she sets out to consult the stone angel that guards the Calvaire Cemetery. And anybody who's not from countryside Belgium, a, um, a Calvaire is a, a series of caves that have like really gory depictions of martyrdom and suffering. So she goes there and then <laughs> consults the angel and she comes back and she smiles faintly of frankincense and sports this weird little half smile on her face and she says, well... Actually, it's all fine. Science and art, they are not so different from each other. And because we are a tight matriarchy slash benign dictatorship, the matter is kind of settled with that, or could have been settled with that, because I am at that point a teenager. And I am the most insufferable, smug kind of teenager, and I am not having a word of this peace offering. So, so and it, it takes years. I set off and I do science and but in spite of everything that first dance school and then university have taught me I'm clearly not as fast on the uptake and it takes years and years to lose the spite so what I do is I kept in touch with my friends from dance school and from music and sometimes we have these ill-advised late night phone calls whilst they are icing their aching limbs, I suppose, and I am sat in the dark, alone in the lab, with nothing but my bioluminescent samples for company. And then I compare trajectories. What they say is that they think that I am lucky. I am lucky because I escaped the scholarship maelstrom. I don't have to apply for scholarships every half year anymore, or find a different job every couple of years. They say I'm... I'm lucky that my workplace doesn't make me feel like I'm worthless and an imposter. They say I'm lucky that at least my workplace doesn't encourage people to turn into depressed, strung out alcoholics. <laughs> I, am, I am a middle child. I like to compromise. I like to keep the peace. So I don't say anything then. But I can't, I can't help to think that all of this sounds eerily familiar and... <laughs> And I think about the, the daily failures and the many rejections and the many disappointments. I think about the, the blatant sexism and the racism and the transphobia and the backstabbing and the dubious morals. And I think about how most days I do feel like I am an imposter. But I also think about how funnily enough most research halls kind of resemble the backstage of a theater. The latest one that I have booked and featuring, among other things, it is Carded Speedboat blue and black screen for various skeletons and some person in the corner close to tears from pain or exhaustion or frustration. But I also think that both science and art are at their heart creative processes that are often spurred on by, by a sense of, of wonder about the world and by curiosity and by persistence and by wanting to go and look at that world and then wanting to tell others about how it's so strange and so beautiful. 
So my family are going to be pleased to a degree, or would be pleased if they spoke any English to hear that um, that there is still creativity creativity in my life, even if these days it mainly involves convincing the the funding bodies about how about how the slimy green things that I really like are as much both of being funded as the the fluffy things that have wings, and. <laughs> And also, another thing, my family never needed to have worried about how a large thing might, thing might eat me because I study microbes now. I look at microscopically small forests for a living and I look at how their reactions to climate change are going to affect the many ways in, way in which this world could end. My lab is a very happy place. <laughs> I have had exactly two encounters with large things since, one of them being um, on a boat in South, Af in South Africa, and there was this, this giant white shark, great white shark, that's what they're called, and it jumped and it missed, the it missed the water, hit the boat instead, and it looked at us, and we looked at the shark, and the feeling of you really don't belong here was kind of mutual, and then the shark <laughs> slithered back into the water that it came from, and we slithered back to the shore that we came from, and that was it. The other encounter with an organism made up from more than oneself was trying to run away from a giant bull in the beautiful Dorset countryside as I was trying to take water samples and I was also on the phone at that point in time to my colleagues back in Cornwall trying to convince them that this field trip was going absolutely splendidly. <laughs> so maybe I should learn to channel my creativity to deal, to learn how to deal with displaced but charismatic macrofauna. Thank you. <laughs> That was Eliza Schaum. An oceanographer turned evolutionary biologist, Eliza investigates what makes some phytoplankton populations better at evolving under climate change than others. She has just started a junior professorship at the University of Hamburg after a position as an associate research fellow at the University of Exeter. Originally from Belgium, she has lived and worked in the Netherlands, Germany, France, South Africa, Italy, New Zealand, and the UK. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker. That's me. With help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Katie Wu, Shane Hanlon, and me, Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon and Springer Nature for hosting these shows, and to everyone out there who hates my voice. Hey, look, if you're hearing this, you made it through the whole episode anyway. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Hanover Square Press, publisher of Exit Strategy by Charlton Pettis. This thrilling new novel imagines a world where a secret organization exists to help the rich and powerful escape their problems. Where a new name, a new face, and an entirely new life are only a phone call away. There's only one rule. You can never, ever go back. Find your escape. Read Exit Strategy today.